This message is brought to you by Alliance Bible Church located in Mequon, Wisconsin. Our vision is to captivate generations with the satisfying gospel of Jesus Christ. For more information about Alliance Bible Church or other resources, please check out our website, myabc.church. During the month of May, um, you submitted questions, and uh, we've been doing a sermon series answering those questions called You Asked For It. And uh, this is our fifth installment of that, and uh, we'll probably go about eight weeks on it and answer eight different questions that, uh, that you gave us. Today, we are talking angels, demons, and spiritual warfare. There was a clump of questions that came in on that topic, so we're going to uh, try to address that. Um, I'm going to do this a little bit differently. I, I feel like I need to give an abridged a theological lecture on angels and demons first, and then we'll get into a specific uh, passage of scripture and work our way through that to see what it has to say on the topic. But let me give my best shot at giving a very condensed version of a theology of angels and a theology of Satan and demons. First, a theology of angels. A few things to note. First of all, they're created by God. Nehemiah 9 says, you are the Lord, you alone. You have made the heaven, the heaven of heavens, with all their host. Most scholars take that as a reference to angels and the host of heaven worships you. Angels are created. You can work that on a logical level as well. Anything non-God was created by God. Angels are not God, so they are created. That's the first thing. Second thing is angels remind us the unseen world is real. The unseen world is real. Second Kings 6, and Elisha prayed, open his eyes, Lord, so that he may see. Then the Lord opened the servant's eyes, and he looked and saw the hills full of horses and chariots of fire all around Elisha. I would encourage you to read the, that story at a later time. Second Kings 6 is a good story. Uh, Hebrews 12 says, But you have come to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem. You have come to thousands upon thousands of angels in joyful assembly. The angels remind us the unseen world is real. It exists. Third, angels worship God. Revelation 5, then I look and looked and heard the voice of many angels numbering thousands upon thousands, 10,000 times 10,000. They encircled the throne and the living creatures and the elders. In a loud voice, they were saying, worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and praise. We don't worship angels. We worship God just like the angels worship God. Important thing to keep in mind. And fourth, Angels assist in carrying out God's plan. We see that in the story of Mary, of Joseph, of Zechariah, of Philip, Cornelius. Angels help execute God's plan. Okay. Satan and demons. How do we understand that? Demons, Satan himself, angels who rebelled. 2 Peter 2, 4, God did not spare the angels when they sinned, but sent them to hell. And angels, demons, are irredeemable. Jesus' blood does not deal with that. That highlights the unique love God has for human beings above and beyond the love he has for the angelic world. Another passage, Jude 6, and the angels who did not keep their positions of authority but abandoned their proper dwelling, these he has kept in darkness, bound with everlasting chains for judgment on the great day. Second thing we learn about Satan and demons is that they are murderers and liars. Murderers and liars. John 8, Jesus is speaking, you belong to your father the devil 
and you want to carry out your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning, not holding to the truth, for there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks his native language, for he is a liar and the father of lies. And third, Satan and the demons oppose the work of God. 2 Corinthians 4, the God of this age, the God of this age, lowercase g, the God of this age, has blinded the minds of unbelievers so that they cannot see the light of the gospel that displays the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. Very quickly, crash course on angels and demons. Um, we're going to be looking at a passage from Ephesians 6. So if you have your Bibles, I encourage you to turn there. Ephesians 6, 10 to 20. Here's what we're going to try to do. C.S. Lewis, in his introduction to the screw tape letters, argues there are two extremes we need to avoid when it comes to Satan, demons, the spiritual world, spiritual warfare. This is what he writes. He says, there are two equal and opposite errors into which our race can fall about the devils. One is to disbelieve in their existence. The other is to believe and to feel an excessive and unhealthy interest in them. Two equal and opposite errors the human race falls into about the demonic world. The one is to dismiss it. The other is to obsess over it. We'll see, hopefully through the passage in front of us, that the Bible does not walk either one of those roads. It walks a middle road. In our modern world, we either dismiss the supernatural world and we see everything as having only natural causes. So we'll say it's not spiritual, it's psychological, it's sociological, it's biological. Or we swing it the other way. We dismiss the natural world and see everything as only having a spiritual cause. It's not psychological, it's not sociological, it's not biological, it's spiritual. Neither view is biblical. Neither view is biblical. One view dismisses the spiritual world. The other view dismisses the material world. God created both. He created both. He created both the spiritual world and the material world, so we should expect there to be physical and spiritual causes to our problems. Throughout the history of Christianity, this passage in front of you has been the one most frequently used to discuss spiritual warfare. So let me read it, and then we'll go through it. Ephesians 6, starting in verse 10. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Therefore, put on the full armor of God, so that when the day of evil comes, you may be able to stand your ground, and after you have done everything, to stand. Stand firm, then, with the belt of truth buckled around your waist, with the breastplate of righteousness in place, and with your feet fitted with the readiness that comes from the gospel of peace. In addition to all this, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. Take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. And pray in the Spirit on all occasions with all kinds of prayers and requests. With this in mind, be alert and always keep on praying for all the Lord's people. Pray also for me, that whenever I speak, words may be given me so that I will fearlessly make known the mystery of the gospel for which I am an ambassador in chains. Pray that I may declare it fearlessly as I should. 
So here's what we're going to look at today. We're going to look at who we are battling, what we are battling, and how to battle. Spiritual warfare, Ephesians 6, who we're battling, what we're battling, and how to battle. Number one, who we're battling. Paul, in in this passage we just read, says our battle is not against flesh and blood. So this immediately sounds like Paul is dismissing the physical world. But reading a passage in its context is important. In fact, if I was to give anybody one principle to apply every time you read the Bible to avoid twisting Scripture, it's this. A text without a context becomes a pretext for a proof text. Got it? A text without a context becomes a pretext for a proof text. Now we would think, Paul says our battle is not against flesh and blood. It sounds like he's dismissing the physical world. A text without a context becomes a pretext for a proof text. Paul isn't saying there's no such thing as flesh and blood evil. Think about how his life is revealed in the broader context of the New Testament. He himself battled against flesh and blood evil. Repeated beatings, imprisonments. In fact, already in this letter in Ephesians, he has warned his readers about flesh and blood evil. In chapter 4, he told them to avoid flesh and blood evils like greed, anger, sexual impurity. So when Paul says our struggle is not against flesh and blood, it cannot mean Paul doesn't think flesh and blood evil exists. He's experienced it firsthand, and he's repeatedly telling Christians to avoid it. What he must be saying is that the nature of our ultimate opposition is spiritual. That is, behind flesh and blood evil, there are spiritual forces. Behind flesh and blood evil, there are spiritual forces. When you see racism, when you see genocide, when you see looting, when you see gossip, all of those are flesh and blood evil. But there is something behind, above, beyond those flesh and blood evils that make them more than just flesh and blood evils. Behind flesh and blood evil is something that isn't flesh and blood. Now, in the modern world, as you probably all know, we have trouble with that. In the modern Western world, everything has a natural cause. Therefore, everything has a scientific explanation. If all flesh and blood evil has a natural cause and scientific explanation, then crime, poverty, war, violence, all of that must have a natural cause. What are those natural causes? What do you hear proposed as being the the natural causes of all those evils and injustices? Well, you hear bad psychological factors. You weren't raised right. You weren't educated right. Bad sociological factors. Bad social systems. And we say there has to be a natural cause to this, and we can figure it out, and we can fix it. That's the motto of Western society. We can figure it out with the natural causes, and we can address it, and we we can fix it. But that mindset is wearing thin. Andrew Del Banco, who calls himself a secular liberal, taught sociology at Columbia University, he wrote a book called The Death of Satan. The first line in his book is this. He says, a gulf has opened in our culture between the visibility of evil and the intellectual resources to cope with it. And he goes on to say that we have jettisoned in the West cosmic evil, transcendent evil, supernatural evil. We've jettisoned that. 
We don't believe in that. In fact, he says, we don't even like to use the word evil. And the reason we don't like it implies value judgments and moral absolutes. So we use medical terms. Instead, we call it dysfunction or pathology. We don't use moral terminology. But Del Banco says, as time has gone on, it's become harder and harder to say that holocausts and ethnic cleansing and serial killing is just bad psychological and sociological adjustment. In his book, he turns to a very famous interaction in another book, The Silence of the Lambs. It's a place where the young policewoman, Officer Starling, goes to meet for the very first time the monstrous serial killer, Hannibal Lecter. She goes to his cell. She's a little bit at a distance from him. She's looking at him, hearing what he's done. This is what she says. What happened to him to make him so twisted? What happened to him that he could be so cruel? And he overheard her. And he begins to speak, and this is what he says. Nothing happened to me, Officer Starling. I happened. You can't reduce me to a set of influences. You've given up good and evil for behaviorism, Officer Starling. You've got everyone in moral dignity pants. Nothing is ever anybody's fault. Look at me. Can you stand to say I'm evil? And then Del Banco, who's quoting this, says, modern people cannot answer the monster's question. And he goes on to point out that human history is bloodiest century. The 20th century. Human history is bloodiest century. The 20th century came about when incredible advances were made in education and science. So if all evil has natural causes, why is it evil was at its worst when education and science were at their best? Naturalism is struggling to account for this. But the Bible doesn't have a problem accounting for this because there's such a thing as a supernatural world. We aren't fighting merely natural causes. We are battling a real demonic world. Second, what we are battling. Paul says that we're battling the devil's schemes. In the original language, the word is methodia. It's the word for strategy. And in the broader context of Greek literature, this word was often used to describe how a wild animal cunningly stalks and then pounces on its prey. It's a very interesting word because it indicates that the devil has a portfolio of strategies that he employs. What are those? Well, the name devil, the name Satan means deceiver. So if the essence of the devil is deception, think to yourself what his schemes or his strategies might be. This is where we have to start to check our affinity for science fiction movies at the door. This is where we've gotten a little bit sloppy as Christians thinking through spiritual warfare. We've got images of demons flying around our room and entering our bodies and causing crazy things to happen. That's the extreme exception not the rule, because Satan's primary goal is to deceive you, not scare you. John White uses an interesting image. He says, if you open the lid to a piano, if you open up a lid to a piano and you sing a note into it, whatever note you're singing, that corresponding string will begin to vibrate. 
And he says, that's how Satan works. He lifts your lid and he sings a note into your life. He knows what strings you've got. These are his schemes. These are his strategies. Thomas Brooks, who was a 17th century pastor, talked um, of, of the devil's schemes, of Satan's schemes. He wrote a book, an entire book on the topic. It's called Precious Remedies Against Satan's Devices. And in it, he spells out almost 40 different strategies, 40 different schemes Satan employs to accomplish his goal. 40 different notes he can sing into your life to vibrate your strings. Let me, let me walk through a bunch of them. First, Satan shows you the bait and hides the hook. He shows you the bait and he hides the hook. He gets you to look at the short-term pleasure of what this will do while hiding the long-term misery it's going to create for you. Second, by getting you to rationalize sin as virtue. What does that look like? I'm not greedy. I'm just thrifty. I'm not really nosy. I'm just concerned. I'm not an alcoholic. I'm just sociable. This is one of his schemes. He gets us to rationalize sin as virtue. Another one, by showing you the sin of Christian leaders. So you say to yourself, he did it too. Nobody's really that pure. By overstressing the mercy of God. So you say to yourself, do it. God will forgive you. That's his job. By making you bitter over suffering. So what you say is this. I've suffered. I've had it hard, so I deserve this. I've suffered. I've had it hard, so I deserve this. By the way, this is people in positions of, of authority. This is what they go through. This is what they succumb to. This is a string they have. If you're in a position of high influence, of high authority, pay attention to this. Here's what they'll say. Nobody knows how hard I've had to work. Nobody knows how much I've had to sacrifice to get here. So I deserve this. Here's another one. By showing Christians how many bad people seem to be having great lives. So you say, I might as well do it. Playing by the rules doesn't pay off. Here's another one. By getting you to compare one part of your life to another. So Satan will get you to think to yourself, you know, I'm really good over here and here, so it's okay if I'm not so good over here. You compare one part of your life to another. You say, I'm really good over here, but I'm not so good over here, but I'm really good over here. You know an extreme, extreme example of that one? Mafia hitmen. I'm good to my mother. Okay, I kill people, but I'm really good to my mother. Here's another one. By causing us to look more at our sin than our Savior. By causing us to look more at our sin than our Savior. Just a side note here. Two best bits of parenting wisdom I've ever been given. Here they are. Number one, the best gift I can give my kids is to love their mom as Christ loved the church. Nothing breeds more security in children than to see deep affection, intimacy, love that dad and mom have for one another. Second was this, for every criticism, every one criticism I give my kids, I need to give them four or five compliments. If my kids get one compliment for every criticism, they'll grow up hating themselves. And there are biblical reasons for that. 
Criticism really, criticisms really lodge. They stick. Because deep down we know there's something wrong with us. We can put up a veneer and make everybody think we're okay and we get, don't have any problems, no issues. We know the truth. So when we get criticized, they stick. Compliments bounce. They bounce. So what Brooks is saying here is that for every one look at your sins, you need to take four or five looks at your Savior. And one of the devil's schemes is to make sure that you don't, you don't do that. By causing Christians to obsess over past sins that they have done, that have done damage and can't be undone. So he gets you to think about something you did in the past that did damage to someone, someone you loved, a friend, yourself, and to obsess over that. This is his scheme. By making Christians think the troubles they're going through must be punishments. So you say to yourself, this wouldn't have happened if God wasn't mad at me. Last one, by making people think that the inner struggles and feelings they have, Christians couldn't possibly have. So you think to yourself, if I was a real Christian, I wouldn't be having these thoughts and desires. It's the devil's schemes. Satan is playing you. He knows what strings you've got. Do you know what strings you've got? Don't be unaware of his strategies. Know his schemes. Know which ones he likes to use on you. Know what your strings are. Third, how to battle. The verbs that, that uh, describe putting on the armor indicate a past one-time action that is complete. So here's the, here's the imagery. You don't put your armor on in the middle of the war. You don't put your armor on once the, once the arrows start raining down on you. You're in full battle armor before the, the war starts. That's, that's, got, that's got some interesting implications for us. Think about it. If your life's okay, there are no great disappointments or failures, so you're not tempted to despair, or there's no real persecution or major criticism, so you're not tempted to anger or resentment. If you don't, if you don't feel like there's any real battles going on, what happens? You spiritually coast, right? When circumstances are good, we coast. We don't have much of a prayer life. We're not really in the scriptures. Uh, our involvement in the church is superficial, when things are going well, we coast. And then the arrows start flying. The arrows start raining down on us. And we don't have our armor on. When things go bad, then all of a sudden we're in church every week. Now we're praying. Now we're reading God's word. But it's too late. It's too late. The armoring of your soul takes time, and you cannot do that in the blink of an eye. The armoring of your soul is a daily grind. It's a daily discipline. It should be a daily joy. Your entire Christian life is meant to be lived in full battle gear. There isn't a moment where you don't have it on. So let's look at it. Let's look at what Paul is saying about the battle gear we're supposed to have on and continue to armor ourselves every day with it. The first is the belt of truth. Belt held everything together on a soldier. It makes sense that Paul would begin with this. The truth about who we are, who God is, what God has done, where human history has been and is going. It would make sense that Paul would say, that is the belt that holds everything together. And let me give you one example of why truth is critical to spiritual warfare. 
One of the truths the Bible maintains is that human beings are more sinful, flawed, and messed up than we can possibly imagine. It's one of the truths the Bible maintains about the nature of humanity. In spiritual warfare, Satan is going to try to get you to reject this. He's going to try to get you to disbelieve so that you think to yourself, I'm not so bad. I don't do X, Y, and Z. I'm not so bad. And the result of disbelieving the Bible's truth on this is that we have an overinflated view of ourselves. Very subtly, this becomes pride. You struggle with pride. You have struggled with an overinflated view of yourself. You disbelieve the Bible's teaching about how sinful, flawed, and messed up we are. Here's what happens. When suffering comes, it makes you bitter because you're thinking to yourself, I don't deserve this. I'm better than this. I don't deserve this. When we struggle with pride, suffering will have a heyday with us. One truth, just one truth to work into your life to wage war. Second is the breastplate of righteousness. Breastplate was used for protection. Paul says righteousness is our protection. I take that to mean he's referring to the righteousness of Christ. The righteousness that we've been given, that Jesus is righteous that we've been given. So what does this look like practically? Jesus lived a perfect life, and by faith we get credit for that. So on one level, when you become a Christian, God looks at you and he sees Jesus. When you become a Christian, God looks at you, he sees Jesus. He doesn't see your past mistakes. He doesn't see your mess. He sees Jesus. Remembering that is a great protection against one of Satan's strategies that we looked at earlier. Remember, Satan wants you to look more at your sin than your Savior. He wants you to look more at your sin than your Savior. Put on the breastplate of righteousness. That means looking at your Savior more than your sins. If you're a Jesus follower, you can look at yourself in the mirror and you can say, because of what Jesus has done, when God looks at me, he sees his Son. By faith, when God looks at me, he sees me as if I lived the life Jesus lived. And that protects you from all sorts of feelings of failure and self-condemnation. It fills you with joy and security. Next bit of equipment is the gospel of peace, footwear. Bible says that we are by nature objects of wrath. That is, we're not born Christians. Nobody was born a Christian. We are born sinners deserving of God's justice. But through the gospel, our relationship with God is changed from one of wrath and alienation to one of peace. And there's nothing Satan can do to change that. You're at peace with God by faith because of what Jesus has done. Now, the Bible has a variety of ways of talking about God's love, but on one level, it's perfectly right to say there's nothing I can do that will make God love me more than he already does. There's nothing I can do that will make God love me more than he already does. We live in a performance-based society. Your value is predicated on your performance. And that causes us to run hard. It causes us to kick ourselves when we fall short. Remember the gospel. In the gospel, your value isn't based on your performance. Your value is based on what Jesus did for you on the cross. Think about it. How much must Jesus value you for him to willingly go to the cross for you? 
He doesn't do that for nobodies. He does that only for those he values. Next is the shield of faith. Faith is mentioned hundreds of times in the Bible. Sometimes we just don't have a right definition of this. John Murray defines faith as having three components, knowledge, conviction, and trust. Biblical faith involves knowledge, conviction, and trust. I try to illustrate this. When I was a kid, uh, I and my siblings developed the tradition of jumping off the stairs into dad's arms. As we got older, we got bolder. You know, we would start with the, maybe the third stair and then jump into dad's arms. And then that graduated. Fifth stair. Sixth stair. Seventh stair. And instead of, you know, kind of, you know, slowly leaning down the stairs, we would sprint up to the seventh stair, turn around and jump off without even thinking about it, just throw ourselves down the stairs. Then grandpa came over. He wanted in on this action. I remember thinking, he looks older. Is he as strong as dad? Can he even catch? Instead of sprinting up to the seventh step, immediately turning around and throwing ourselves down the steps, we started with step number two. <laughs> Try this, Grandpa. What's going on there? I didn't know Grandpa like I knew Dad. I was around Dad every day. We'd talk and interact. Not so with Grandpa. I had a deeper knowledge of my dad than grandpa and as a result trusted him more than I did grandpa. Some people portray faith as a blind leap into something completely unknown. Not so. Faith is an incredibly important battle tactic, but it's difficult to trust somebody you know little about. Knowing really well the object of your faith is indispensable to faith itself. Anxiety and anger's roots are a lack of faith, a lack of trust in God. And where there's a lack of faith in God, there's a lack of knowledge about him. It's not just having knowledge, though. It's having conviction, knowledge that translates into meaningful reality. I not only knew my dad, but I knew that my knowledge meant a meaningful reality. That is, when I did jump off the stairs, there was no question about what would transpire for me. I knew he would catch me. But that meaningful reality that I firmly was convicted by also led to action. I hurled myself off the seventh step. It's biblical faith. Knowledge, conviction, and trust. Next is the helmet of salvation. Paul is saying the salvation that awaits us in the future is a protection for us. The fact that Paul is mentioning our future salvation suggests an important battle tactic is setting our hearts and our minds on the future, living today with eternity in view. How often do you think about 100 years from now? 
You ever take time to think about 100 years from now? How often do you contemplate your mortality? Let me give you two practical and unorthodox practices to help with this battle tactic. First, attend as many funerals as you can. Attend as many funerals as you can. And make frequent visits to assisted living communities. I'm a pastor's kid and a pastor. My parents were very deliberate with these growing up. At some point in time when I was still very young, my parents made a concerted effort to bring me along to the funerals they were going to. And my mom brought all four of us to the nursing home that was across the street from our childhood home. And we went there quite often. Those two practices do the best job of getting people to think about their own deaths than anything else I know of. Last is the sword of the Spirit. Paul says the sword of the Spirit is the Word of God. It's the Word of God. There's an outfit out there called Back to the Bible, which has done some interesting worldwide research. They surveyed more than 200,000 people in 20 different countries about their spiritual lives, and they discovered some, some interesting things. You can check out their website. They've got just lists and lists of studies and stats and things they found. But they discovered that someone who thoughtfully engages with the Bible four or more days per week, thoughtfully engages with the Bible four or more days per week, is 228% more likely to share their faith, 407% more likely to memorize Scripture, 416% more likely to support their church financially, and 40% less likely to feel bitter about someone or some situation. They found a direct correlation between frequent, thoughtful Bible engagement and active faith and fewer struggles. Not that their life went better, their lives didn't go better, but they handled it better. Why? Well, we hear that and we think, wow, that's amazing. But it's all right there. It's already given to us. God told us how to fight the war. He told us how to fight it. He told us how to overcome it. He told us what leads to victory. Why are we surprised? Why are we surprised that frequent, thoughtful Bible engagement translates to these realities? Now, let me, let me make one concluding observation. Look at how Paul ends this section on spiritual warfare. Verse 18. And pray in the Spirit on all occasions with all kinds of prayers and requests. Pray in the Spirit on all occasions. All occasions. With all kinds of prayers and requests. One final battle tactic to make sure that you have in your arsenal is prayer. We're going to look at this when we look at our vision and values in August. Prayer is going to be a value here. Prayer is always a good use of your time. You ever find yourself bored, not knowing what to do, 
pray. It's a magnificent use of your time. It is never a waste of your time to pray. And oftentimes we look at prayer as uh, setting the stage for something we want to have happen down the road. Right? We pray in hopes that this thing over here will, will come to fruition. We look at it kind of like at the pregame show. It's the prelude. It's the warm-up. But the real game is done in the trenches, you know, with that conversation you have to have or when, with that class you have to lead or that study you have to facilitate. That's really where it happens. That is, that's nonsense. That is not the way the Bible presents prayer. The Bible presents prayer as if itself is ministry. Prayer is not a prelude to ministry. It is ministry. The moment you're praying, you're engaging in ministry. It is not a warm-up to some other thing. It is the thing. Let's pray. Gracious God, you've told us in your word that greater is in us than that which is in the world. Remind us, God, that your spirit is more powerful than our enemy. We need not fear. We need not unnecessarily fixate on the demonic world. Jesus has triumphed over Satan. He made a public spectacle of him through the cross and resurrection. The victory's been won. Teach us to fix our eyes on Jesus, the author, the perfecter of our faith. Grant us the conscientiousness to armor ourselves the way you want us to, to rub the gospel into our lives. Because of it, nothing can separate us from the love of Christ. Nothing can separate us from the love of Christ. We praise you. We worship you for it. And ask this all in Jesus' powerful name. Amen.